beginning a chapter that is one of the, I think, most applicationally relevant chapters uh, in the New Testament. It, it focuses on an area of life that I think um, all of us wrestle with. And the word I wrote up on the board is what we want to talk about in a minute. Uh, we did start the chapter last week briefly introducing a couple of things. Uh, we talked in verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, real quickly, just to review that, the, the Apostle Paul is introducing this subject of peace. The peace of God, that's the main theme of chapter 4, which we'll get to in just a minute. But he introduces it by focusing on something that was going on in that little church at Philippi. A disagreement, a conflict, uh, I'm not sure what word to use, but these are two women, in verse 2 we see their names, Euodia and Syntyche. Can you imagine naming your children that? But <laughs> They're very um, familiar Greek names for that day and age, and I don't think I need to say anything more about that. But there are two women in the church, and it says, uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony um, in the Lord, um, to agree in the Lord. Here, is, uh, here are two people that are, it must have been pretty serious, just not getting along. Now, I know for all of you around the table, that's almost an inconceivable thing to happen in a local church, isn't it? I mean, you just have to, for us, we have to sort of hypothesize it, imagine it. We just can't ever get our arms around the idea that Christians are going to disagree. Two of you are laughing, so that means the rest of you don't get it. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a, this is a common thing. And I may, let me make a statement that I always make when I do premarital counseling. You're going to disagree. There, there will be conflict in your relationship. Now, you have two 20-year-olds who are so blissfully in love, what they disagree about at, at the height is what to order when they go out to dinner. But they're going to be, when they start living together, Day in and day out, there's going to be a lot of disagreement. It's going to be a lot of conflict. The difference for the believer is not the presence of conflict or the absence of conflict. It's how do you manage it. That's the difference. So what you have here is you have two individuals. We have no idea. We have no idea what's going on. But what we do know... Do you have any more of these? I have... One copy. Okay. What he does is he asks, in verse 3, he asks someone to come in and mediate this disagreement. Again, we have no idea who it is. I urge you, indeed, verse 3, true comrade. Some translations have yoke fellow, which is an old English word. I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. And I'll comment on the last phrase in verse 3 in a minute. Now, do you see what he's doing? He's, some, he's doing something that you and I should take notice. You and I should think about. And you and I should apply. When two people, and in this case it's two believers, they apparently were kind of important people, because he tells us that they shared with him in the gospel. They were involved in the work. And whatever their disagreement is and whatever their conflict is, it's serious. So what does he do? Bring somebody else in to settle it. 
someone else in to help them come to a point of, of, of agreement, settle whatever the conflict is. That's good advice. That is really good advice. So often for you and me, if we see a conflict, or even in our own lives, if there's conflict, that's why sometimes if a husband and a wife are in a period of pretty significant conflict and they just can't settle it, there's nothing wrong with bringing somebody in, going to counseling. There's nothing wrong with that. You see that throughout the scriptures. You see a lot of it in the Proverbs of Solomon. Bring somebody in to help, to help settle the issues. So without getting, because we don't know anything else about the details of the conflict, that's just it. He just says, I ask you, yoke fellow, we don't know who the, who the guy is, help these people settle it. And then he says something, fellow workers, then he says something that's really unusual, whose names are in the book of life. What is he saying there? He's saying who are believers. But he says something that is, is rarely stated in the Bible. Believers' names are written in the book of life. <clears throat> I love that. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, refers to the book of life. And, I mean, without getting into the theology of all of that, unless you really, really want me to, I, I don't really want to do that. It simply is stating to us that in the throne room of God is a book. And in that book is the list, if you will, of all of those who have put their faith in Christ. The book of life. Not physical life, of eternal life. And that's how it's referred to in Revelation 3, 5. It's in several other places in the scriptures where it's alluded to. I have no idea why Paul chooses to put it this way. Because normally he just says, along with other believers. But here he says, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And how do you get your name in the book of life? By putting your faith in Christ. So it's just, it's, I, we do not know why he chooses to do it this way. But it gives us a piece of information that's in a couple of other places in the New Testament that there is a book of the people who have put their faith in the Lord. And they're in the book of life, i.e. eternal life. All right. The only thing I wanted to do with that was just illustrate how Paul wants to settle this disagreement between these two ladies. Bring a third party in. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing I, that impressed me was that um, Paul was being very sincere in, in really caring for both of these people rather than taking sides. And he valued them. And so when it comes to our lives, if there's a dispute... We don't take the sides, but we value them in Christ and and want to see good for both of them rather than uh, compounding the problem. We want that resolution, don't we? I mean, you're mm -hmm. saying bring in a counselor and yep. get it resolved so mm -hmm. that sometimes enemies become the best friends. Mm -hmm. You know, when, you, um, when, when it's reconciled. Sure. Sure. And, and so well, often um, a third party, uh, counselor, whatever the nature of that person might be, one of the things the person tries to do is get both sides to understand what's going on. 
Sometimes, I mean, even those of you who are married, and almost everyone, at least those that I know around the table are married, you know as well as I do, as a husband, your primary task is to understand that woman, not always agree with that woman. We seek to understand. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, men seek to understand your wives. I studied under a man when I was in graduate school, and he would say to us all the time, men Understand your wives. Now I've, you know, I'm six. I'm in my 68th year. And I've been married to Peggy for 44 and a half years. I understand about 80 percent of what makes my wife tick. I mean it. You know, I mean, she, and she. I've gone through all of the early years of marriage. I've gone through children with her. I've gone through menopause with her. She's sick. I'm going through that with her. But I'm not sure I still completely get it with her. And I'm, need, I'm being humorous, but it is a task. And if you love somebody, you seek to understand, not always necessarily agree. Sometimes in a marriage, you just agree to disagree on things. That's okay. Yours doesn't rise and fall on your opinion. And so, you, and so whatever this person is going to do, this yoke fellow, this comrade to whom Paul is addressing, verse 3, he wants him to come in and be a mediator. Bring these two together. And so what that means is you're going to seek to understand and do the best you can to have them both understand one another's perspective. Darryl. Is there anything to be taken from the way that uh, Paul says, I urge you mm. and I urge Mm-hmm. In other words, he's giving the same treatment. He didn't say, I urge. Yeah, he's not taking sides from either one. Same command to both of them. Is yeah. there something to be taken from Well, that? I think Fred sort of alluded to it in his comments. I, there, I think you're, you're, you're on to something. He is clearly not tilting toward either one of them. He's saying to both of them, it's your responsibility to settle this. Euodia and Syntyche, you each have the responsibility to settle this. It's not, Euodia, you're right. Now I want you to just defer to Syntyche. But we all know you're right. That's not what he did. And so often, uh, oh man, I have had to learn this so many times. So often we have to remember, almost always in the marriage relationship, it isn't a question of who's right and who's wrong. And I'm, sometimes there are very profound ethical issues at stake, but most of the time it isn't that. So you seek to understand, you seek to, you know, you seek to bring the tension level down so that you can resolve this. Successful marriages, I think, in my humble opinion, are really based on the capacity to do that. If you draw the line in the sand and say, I'm absolutely right, and it's about time you come to my side, and if not, silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to you. Until you say you're sorry, I'm not going to talk to you. That's a real effective tool, isn't it? That really builds trust in a marriage relationship, doesn't it? But the same thing happens with children. Now, it's a little bit of different, but the same thing. So often as a child... The child has no, it takes them so long to internalize values and internalize ethical standards. Kohlberg says it's not till they're about 16 or 17 where they're really doing that. So what that means is as parents, I, I, Peggy and I raised our kids with, this was our mantra. 
outside of clear ethical things, say yes to our kids as many times as we can. Because when we say no, and they know it's not arbitrary, there's a real clear reason why mom and dad are saying no here. And that's one of the reasons our kids, I have a great relationship with both my kids. And I think one of the reasons is they, they saw that. When we laid down a, a standard, it was a good reason why we were laying. It wasn't arbitrary. I'm getting way beyond a passage like this. But I really think, man, I think this is a skill that we as Christians, and especially as Christian men, we should learn how to master this. How do we be the leader in resolving conflict in our families? In our, in, for most, you know, like if you're like me, you know, your kids are gone, raised, or having their own kids and stuff like that. But still, you can be a guide in that area. But certainly in the workplace, in church. Because, uh, you know, I think you've heard me say this. The local church is just a real messy thing. I mean, it really is. Because it's made up of people just like you. I mean, they're sinners, they have they've baggies, they have all kinds of struggles, and you just all come together. Why in the world would we expect the local church to be a, a perfect, beautiful thing where there's no conflict, no disagreement? That's not the real world. The issue is how do you manage that? How do you help, help to deal with some of those things that really don't matter, like the color of the carpet, versus a real significant theological issue like the deity and humanity of Jesus. That's a big deal. But call that carpet. Anyway. I think we're done, aren't we? Any questions or comments before we leave this? Yeah, Ty. Back to verse 3. Um, so the affirmation of their belief by the use of the word of life, would there be any reason to that as well? Because sometimes in Christian discord, when it gets nasty... Sometimes people start saying, "Well, maybe you aren't even saved." Oh, that's I, I, that's a thought. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that is in part of Paul's intent or not. But that's an interesting observation. Be it could believer, be. But yeah. Says, yeah. 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 Don't raise that issue. Yeah. That's good. That's a good comment. That's a good thought. Could be. All right. Let's transition now to verse four. Through nine, and in in the notes you, you kind of see that's how I've, I've done this. The Apostle Paul begins to talk about peace. You will notice in verse seven the peace of God. Verse nine, the God of peace. Now let's take a minute. Peace as a quality of life is one of the fruit of the Spirit. You see that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Now, you, know, you know the passage I'm referring to, don't you? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our life. Alright, so that means it's a supernatural quality that the Holy Spirit produces. But it's also here, this is a command, this is in a context of a command that deals with human behavior. So, from the perspective that Paul, Paul is not taking this perspective in this passage. In Galatians 5, 22, this is the perspective he's taking. This is something the Holy Spirit produces in our life. He's focusing on what's our responsibility in experiencing this quality of life called the peace of God. 
So what I want to do for just a minute is talk about, man, it's getting warm in here. I want to talk a little bit about this quality of life, peace. Now, it's, it's a supernatural quality because it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. But what are some synonyms for peace? Now, obviously, I, I'm sure you, you see this. This doesn't have anything to do with military activity. We're not talking about war here. We're not talking about you know, the kinds of things that are going on in the Middle East or during World War I or II or anything like that. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about peace in relationships, peace in your internal life, the, the quality of life called peace, peace of God. What would be some synonyms for peace? Contentment. Ah, there's somebody said, John said content. Great word, contentment. What other synonyms, other terms might we put? Tranquility. Tranquility, good. Tranquility. Anything else? Hmm? I said shalom. Shalom, well, yeah. <laughs> the Hebrew word is shalom, okay? <laughs> By the way, the Greek word, which is what he's using here, is irene. What proper name do we get for that? Irene. Irene, Irene which happens to be my daughter-in-law's name. I just thought I <laughs> The mother of my grandson, who yeah, was just there But anyway, uh, that's peace. Anything else? Think of any other... Synonyms that might fit as you think of peace, personal peace. I would, I would think we might widen the circle a little bit. A stability, a solidness about life you know, that comes from and is a dimension of the contentment and tranquility. Firm. Uh, firm, yeah, okay. Okay, there's a... <clears throat> Uh, I've preached a message on peace and one of the introductory illustrations I use, I'm going to use it here because I think it illustrates the point well. Um, this is, goes back a long time in American history, but there was a small little com rural community that had just built a new community center. And, you know, rural communities are not real large, but it was a nice community center and they wanted to uh, have, as you walked into the facility, a painting <clears throat> a painting that kind of exhibited one of the things they wanted to see in their community, peace. They wanted a community where peace and, and contentment and stability is, is kind of manifested everywhere. So they commissioned a couple of local artists to paint a painting that would have as its title, Peace. Well, one, uh, one painter submitted a, a painting of a gorgeous still mountain lake, like you see up in Minnesota or up in upstate New York or something like that. Just very tranquil, very beautiful. You know, that sun was shining and reflecting. It was just a gorgeous painting. The other painting that was submitted was of a similar scene, except it wasn't a tranquil lake. It was a raging waterfall. And as the water cascaded over the rocks, it kind of created a little bit of a mist, as it often does. And at just a little bit off the off center of the painting was this large tree and branches stretching out. And right in the midst of one of these large branches was a little nest, nestled right you know, where birds often build their nests. And a mother was sitting on the nest, all coated with the mist from the waterfalls, called peace. Which one do you think won the contest? The second one. Because peace 
is like that. In the midst of chaos and turbulence, there's peace. That's what this is talking about. That's why Paul introduces this theme with this conflict in the local church in Philippi. Because there is always going to be turbulence, always going to be chaos in life. So, so peace does not mean calm, it's more of a state of mind or an attitude. A quality of life, yep. yep. It's something that the Lord, through his spirit, produces in our life. But we're not passive in this. So in your notes, I, I gave this a label, the prerequisites. If we want to experience the peace of God, if we, wanna, if we want the quality of our life to be characterized by in the midst of, of life is hard. We live in a fallen world. To have the contentment and tranquility and stability and solidness and all those other terms we discussed, what's our responsibility? There are three of them. Are you ready? Verse 4 is the first one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. He's working up to verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all. So if you want to have the peace of God, that quality of life, prerequisite number one, rejoice in the Lord. Let's turn the word rejoice, which is a verb, into a noun. Joy. Joy in the Lord. And it is important, joy in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say in the circumstances. Let's, God forbid this would happen. But you walk out of the building here at Home Instead and you are walking on the walk and you're just coming off and you trip and stumble and you break your leg. Break out into hilarious, joyful laughter. Amen? <laughs> no. It's going to hurt. It's going to be disorienting. You're going to want to sue home instead. No, I'm just kidding. No. You rejoice in the Lord. So let's talk a little bit about joy. Say it again, please. It's rooted in perspective. What does that mean? It means that you're able to be that bird on the nest when everything's chaotic around mm. you. You understand purpose. You understand God's control over your life and your role in it. And having the correct perspective allows you to have joy, which wouldn't be a natural emotion in the scenario. Very unnatural, wouldn't it? It'd be almost absurd from a human perspective. What would be some synonyms for genuine biblical joy in the Lord? Liddy? I think acceptance. Okay, acceptance. Of the situation. Acceptance of the situation. And knowing that that's God's will. You got a flat tire, you got to stop and change it, but that might have kept you out of an accident up ahead. We have no idea what what all is going on, but if our trust is in the Lord, then we can have that kind of confidence, that kind of, of acceptance. Um, okay, acceptance. What would be another 
word for joy. Despite everything that's going on, that's what the Lord has given us. Is that, is that, I'm okay, I mean, that, again, that's... Um, that's part of the yeah that's part of what Ty was talking about in that perspective that's true I mean listen I'm saying something that's maybe obvious to you but joy must be rooted in our theology whether you want to put it that way or not but it must be rooted in what we believe about God let's put it another way you and I have a choice every day we wake up are we going to allow circumstances to control us or the spirit to control us? Am I going to live a circumstance-controlled life or a spirit-controlled life? Now, that sounds very simple, and it isn't. But I don't know how you are, but my tendency is to be a circumstance-controlled person. But what is it about circumstances? It's like this, isn't it? It's like a graph. It's like the valleys and the mountains. That's circumstance. Spirit control is kind of a, a kind of a straight line or a state. And I'm trying to think of a way to, to illustrate this. In, in a sense, Paul is saying, if you want that quality called the peace of God in your life, seek not to be controlled by circumstances, but seek to be controlled by the Spirit who produces this acceptance, this stability, and this attitude of gratitude for life, which is my definition of joy, an attitude of gratitude about life. Norman Vincent Peale has a story that he tells about seeing a guy getting off the plane at the airport. Um, his wife and kids coming and the happiness that they experienced, that this guy experienced. And Norman asked him about it and he looked at Norman in dead seriousness and said, it's not a feeling, it's a decision. It's a, not, and not a, a feeling, decision. it's a, a decision. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd agree with that. It is not a feeling. Feelings are like this. And it's not happy. No. Because happy is more of an external. It is. Yeah. Whereas joy is an internal. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It, I was hoping, and none of you did it, praise the Lord. None of you said happiness as a synonym for joy. Genuine biblical joy, because I don't think it is. I hope I, can, I hope I can get through this. Happiness depends on happenings. And if our happenings don't happen to happen the way we want our happenings to happen, we are unhappy. Did you get it? <laughs> uh, I don't think I could say it again. And I, I don't mean, I, I guess in one sense you could say happiness is a problem. But probably it isn't, at least from the Bible's perspective. Because happiness is very, very much a response to circumstance. Joy isn't. Let's, let's, let's put it another way. Can you envision... A life of joy, attitude with our tears, where there's kind of a pain in the gut that you. How about women at a wedding? How about women that are what? At a wedding. 
Okay. Uh, I'll tell you, at both of my kids' weddings, I officiated and I cried. I'm, oh man! When I gave Joanna to Greg, I, I had to go. Through, I I couldn't make it through the ceremony. I had to stop a couple of times and swallow and all this. But anyway, I know what you mean. Um, I'm not trying to make a, too big of a deal out of this, but at the same time. I think we have to clearly understand what he's saying here when he says rejoice in the Lord. We can, we can skip over that very easily. Oh, that sounds good. Sounds so spiritual. Amen. What does it mean? Well, I don't really know what it means. I don't know how to apply something like that. Yes, you do. Rejoice in the Lord. It comes from your theology. What do you know about him? What do you know about his purposes? Paul writes at the end of Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the kind of perspective we have about our God. Again, I say rejoice. Right. I was just thinking about Paul. He says, I press on to the prize of the mark of the high calling, which is directed. It's a conscious effort. And you know, I, I think as guys, sometimes we get disappointed that we don't really hit the mark all the time. But I don't think God expects that of us to hit, hit it all the time. But if we're focused on him, we're going to know when we fall short. And that contrite heart and, and that perspective allows us to, to move on because we know he forgives us and loves us. And, and at least, you know, it's a process. <laughs> Uh, through our entire lives of, you know, being conformed to the image of God. And uh, we shouldn't be discouraged. That's the adversary wanting to us oh, sure. to just give up. And, and we didn't make it, so all right, I'm just throwing everything in. Who in the world does not want you to exhibit the joy of the Lord? The evil one, absolutely. Why do you think he repeats it? Again, I say rejoice. So you don't forget it. So you don't forget it. Repetition is the most effective tool there is in driving a truth home. A good teacher gives a preview, then a view, and then a review. And they still don't get it, but anyway. (laughs) All right, first prerequisite, an attitude of gratitude in life. Second prerequisite. This is a little more difficult, only because of the term he uses here. I'm reading the New American Standard. It says, verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Some translations have, let your gracious spirit. Some translations have, let your gentle spirit. The one thing that's clear is this. This is a relational term. This is a term that has to do with our relationships. A forbearing, gracious, gentle spirit is someone who gets along with people. Boy, there's an easy one. Because almost always, the source of that which robs us of our peace is other people. Almost like he's saying, 
if you want that quality of life called the peace of God, get along with one another. This is like a part of the country or the world that has the biggest problem with that would be where this was preached. Hmm. I mean, they get, I don't know if they're fighting over a chicken or what. <laughs> it's been going on for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's something to fight about the land. But, yeah. Um, why is it that that part of the world can't get along? Now, Matt, when you say that part of the world, you mean the Middle East. Is that what you mean? Middle East, yeah. Okay, I mean, I just want to make sure I understand. You could just say Israel, because of yeah. you, I mean, yeah. the West Bank and why, why, why don't, I mean, well, the, don't have the New Testament, this, Well, the, simp, the simple answer to that, and there are just layers and layers of complexity to an issue like that, but the simple answer to that is... Um, when Abraham was waiting for the promise, his wife came to him and said, Abe, listen, the common, ordinary practice in the ancient Near Eastern world is you take my maidservant and have sexual intercourse with her, and the child will be there. That happens all the time, Abe. Now, I'm putting it colloquially, but that's a, in effect what she said and what Abraham did. He went into Hagar, slept with her, and she gave birth to a child. And that child's name was Ishmael. And the Bible then declares there will be conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. Yes. And that is exactly what's going on. Those two descendants are fighting over exactly the same thing a piece of land. And I'll tell you, to be very blunt and very, very frank, that conflict is not going to be resolved until Jesus comes back. It's just, it's not going to be resolved. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just, it's an amazing thing to see uh, this, and Matt, you're right. And uh, both sides have very clear teaching about shalom and about peace. But, The Jewish people correctly say this is our this is our land by covenant promise from God. And they're right. And those descendants of Ishmael, the Palestinians we would call them today, are saying, but we lived here a long time. Yes, but we've had the land since 1446 B.C. And the whole thing that is now, they're just trying to negate. By the way, did you see the new atlas that HarperCollins just put out of the Middle East? Did you see that? There's no Israel on it. There's no state of Israel on it. Oh, mercy. I was most, I went, the Washington Post had a major article on it two days ago. Now, HarperCollins was so embarrassed by this, they pulled all the atlases back. But can you imagine? This isn't some... Dinky little third-rate publishing house. This is one of the leading publishing houses in the world. Put out an atlas where Israel's not mentioned. It's not. You look at the map the, in, in the article. They showed it. The map, the page in the Middle East. There's no Israel. There's Egypt. There's the West Bank. There's Gaza. There's Syria. But there's no Israel. This was what they said. Well, we want to sell these atlases in the Middle East. 
And if we have Israel on it, they're not going to buy the atlas. <laughs> so you just disallow the existence of a nation to say, I mean, it's just, but that's part of that conflict. Now, in our personal relationships, just interpersonal relationships, the issue is always forbearance, grace, gentleness. A husband, a wife, what does a forbearing, gracious, gentle spirit look like? Honey, I, I just don't understand why you see it this way. Help me to understand why you see it this way. I just don't see it. Instead of saying, you stupid idiot, how come you're not seeing it the way I see it, which is obviously the right way? Which is the more gracious, gentle way to deal with it? A man who is a leader in his home always seeks to understand. Not necessarily agree. And sometimes in human relationships, you agree to disagree about something. I mean, the things that aren't terribly significant, it's okay. Gracious, gentle, forbearing spirit in relationships. What does that look like? There is no end to that. But the believer, if he or she wants that quality of life called the peace of God, because I don't know about you, but in human relationships, they're the things that are hardest for me. I can carry bitterness. I've told you, my father, my dad's 90, he's very sick and so on, but when I, I'm the oldest, I'm the first of four, and my dad was tough old German. Ekman, very tough old German. His dad was a really tough old German. I never heard my dad tell me he loved me until 1973. And the reasons for that are because of something that I chose to do. But he was just a tough guy. And I, oh, I'm telling you, some of the things he did were so arbitrary and difficult. I really, really carried around a lot of bitterness toward my dad. I did not have a gracious, forbearing, gentle spirit toward him. And when I got straight with the Lord in 1972... I taught, was talking to Peggy about this. Honey, I just, I've got to go see Dad. We lived about 90 miles away. So I called him up, and I said, Dad, we're coming down this weekend, but you and I are going to go out for coffee. And this was the son saying this to his dad. So. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So we went out, and I'm telling you, that was the first time. I had never, I'd never seen my dad cry. I'd never heard my dad tell me he loved me until that time when we, we, we started talking. Now when I see him, now it's been a long time. That was a long time ago, 1973. But now when I see my dad, we hug, we kiss. But things, things were very difficult between me and my dad for a long time. I had to take this seriously. And I didn't want to take it seriously. I didn't. But I saw that a peace came into my life. Because whenever I would think of my dad, I always would think very negative things. That's not true anymore. A gracious, forbearing, gentle spirit is one that seeks to reconcile. What does Paul say? As much as it is up to you, be at peace with all men. They may not want that, but you, you seek that. If they don't respond, you've done what the Lord wants you to do. And I think you would agree. Just common sense tells you what can rob you of these things. 
are breakdowns in human relationships where you carry bitterness and grudges. And that's, he's really getting at something that's uncomfortable. But I think we'd better move on because this is too convicting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Thirdly, first, an attitude of gratitude. Second, I'm going to put it almost like a euphemism. Get along with people the best you can. Forbearing, gracious, gentle spirit. Third, don't worry, pray. New American Standard verse 6 puts it this way, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is one of my wife's favorite prayers. She has this verse taped all over the place. Be anxious for nothing. New, uh, not new, what's that? Uh, it's in Psalms. Living Bible. Huh? It's in Psalms, too. Psalms talks about that, too, yes. Living Bible paraphrase has it. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. <laughs> now, again, that's a paraphrase. That's not bad. How many of you worry? Everybody in this room, put your, come on, if you're not honest, if you don't put your hand on. I can tell you, I mean, I have a worry list. <laughs> when I was president, that list was really a long list. Now, I'm being a little facetious, but things that can cause great anxiety in life. What are those things? Well, the goodness, just so many things. It's often our work, our vocation, our boss, the responsibilities we have. I mean, all kind. I mean, there's, there's almost no end to it. Now he chooses the word correctly that we translate anxiety, anxious. It's a little stronger than just worry. But anxiety. Well, think with me about that. Anxiety. Why is that a stronger word than worry? Anxiety. I mean, what when you hear the word anxiety, what comes into your mind? I mean, it can have it. It can have a very significant effect on us, physical effect, all those kinds of things. It can it can upset mental stability, emotional stability. I mean, deep seated anxiety is. I mean, we've. I mean, I'm hardly a medical authority, but I do know there are many medical stu studies that show anxiety levels affect physical health. Anxiety levels are tied to heart disease and stroke and things like that. And so it just medically it makes sense. But he's talking about an aspect of our life that can help produce this. Why does it make sense to pray and not worry theologically? You're closer to God. You, okay, but theologically, I mean, why does it make sense to pray and not worry? Just theologically, yes, you're, you're closer to God, but what else? Right about now, you get there better. And then, uh, <laughs> but what else? What else about God? Aren't you, aren't you supposed to turn your burdens over to Him? Aren't you acknowledging that God's in control and not us? Yes. And if you are so anxiety-ridden that you're almost ineffective, what does that evidence? Lack of faith. Now listen, we're sitting here in a very comfortable room on a rather lovely winter day, and it's easy for us to talk about this. 
But when you get out this afternoon or tomorrow morning or next week and you start to live these challenges, because we can say here in the comfort of this room after we've just finished a delightful cup of coffee, I trust the Lord and I will not be anxiety ridden. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. And I'm not being glib here. But this is a test. How much do we really trust the Lord? Because if we really trust the Lord, we should start to see this process where we are worrying less and praying more. And again, that is very easy to say that. There was a study that was on actually on television today that said that when people worry less, they have less high blood pressure. They tend to live longer. It was just a, a litany of positives that come, and the God who made us understands our body. And so if we're yeah. turning that over to him, that's a, a, a mind with, I Absolutely. think, how we're supposed to live, sure. rather than living under the circumstances. Physiological worry, is that, is that not... Connected to stress. Sure. Stress, sure. physical stress. Sure. <clears throat> to worry less does not necessarily imply that we will pray more. On the other hand, if we switch those two words around and pray more, we will worry less. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. Take a look with me at this verse. Let's look some more uh, and dig a little deeper with some of the terms he uses. Okay, be anxious for nothing. But what's the prepositional phrase? In everything. So for nothing is replaced by in everything, by prayer and supplication. Prayer is a general word. Supplication is a very specific. I am making a very specific request. That's the only difference. Prayer is a general word. Supplication, very specific request. Then what's the, what's the prepositional phrase that follows that? Thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Right, Woody. With thanksgiving. By prayer... And supplication, prayer, general word, supplication, very specific request. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Why does he add the phrase, with thanksgiving? To make it hard. <laughs> to make it hard. <laughs> What's the intent of that phrase, with thanksgiving? Let your prayer and supplication in everything, prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. Jim? I think it's an expression of confidence in God. Jim, put it another way for me. What are you front ending in your request? Do you understand why I'm asking that? I'm not quite sure I understand, but I mean, I think it's a confidence that we have that God, that, that God is, is Why can you thank the Lord in advance for a prayer you're about to make? Because of your faith. Say it again? Because of your faith. 
because of your faith. If you have your uh, New Testament, if you have the complete New Testament, go back with me to Matthew chapter 7 for just a minute. Oh, I hope we have time to get through this. I think we do. I want to use this as an illustration of a truth that's throughout the Bible. And here, this is from the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus, uh, it's in the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching again. He's taught a couple of times about prayer. Now he says something. I want you to notice why I think, based on what Jesus says here in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, why we can pray with thanksgiving. Notice verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. For everyone who asks, receive. Who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now the Lord is using three figures of speech there, three metaphors. What's the point of verse 7 and 8? God hears and answers your prayers. The point of verse 7 and 8 is God hears your prayers and God answers. You are talking to a God who will respond. Okay, Jesus, next question. What kind of a response should I anticipate? Verse 9, what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf? will give him a stone. Can you envision, many of you are dads with kids, can you envision your little boy or little girl, when they're young, coming to you and say, Daddy, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world of the first century, that would have been a piece of bread because it was a typical part of the diet. You don't give him a piece of bread. You give him a stone. That's a thoroughly inappropriate gift. Can you imagine a father giving that to his child? Next question. What man is there among you if your son asks you for a fish, he will not give him a snake? Will he? That's a dangerous gift. Can you imagine giving your child who's asking you for something, making a request, making a supplication, give him a dangerous gift? Good dads don't give inappropriate gifts. Good dads don't give dangerous gifts. Verse 11, the applicational point. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? So you have two grand truths here from Jesus' mouth. God hears prayer and God answers prayer. And second, His answer is always good. The Greek word there is agathos. But here's the clincher. Who determines what's good? Might not always be ice cream. God is determining what the good means. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we won't understand. In the short term, we may not understand that. But God Always, not most of the time, not some of the times, but always. Let's put it negatively, the way Jesus frames it at first. He's never going to send an inappropriate gift. He's never going to send a dangerous gift. It'll always be a good gift, just what we need. And we may not understand it that way at that time frame. 
But remember, God sees our entire life from the very beginning. We're conceived in our mother's womb on into eternity. God sees it. He sees it. Everything fits together. I've told you this story before about Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you know that name? Some of you do, some of you don't. Uh, she's getting older now, but she's been in ministry for decades. She's handicapped. She, her, I think it was her fourth vertebrae was severed through a swimming accident. She's a quadriplegic, total, total quadriplegic. Can't do anything herself. She paints with a the paintbrush in her teeth. She writes with a pen in her teeth. She's an amazing woman. She has the most remarkable ministry to handicapped people I've ever seen. Uh, a number of years ago, this is probably eight or nine years ago, I, it was a summer, I couldn't sleep, and it was in July, and it was really warm, and I got up, and I sometimes, this was when I was still in leadership, and there was just a lot of things going on, but I, it wasn't, I was worried, I was just writing things down, and I thought, I'm pretty tired, but I can't sleep, I'm going to turn on TV, and, I, and Larry King was on, you know, that great theologian. You know, <laughs> but he's not around anymore, but he had Johnny Erickson Todd on, and I couldn't, I really think the Lord wanted me to see that, so... I listened to her, and it was, I was, have you ever seen her? She's just the bubbly, I mean, despite everything, she's just smiling, incredibly um, engaging person. And so he was in, it was clear, he can't, he just not understanding this lady. I mean, here's what, he just doesn't understand. How can you say what you're saying? And he said things like, do you expect to walk in heaven? And she said, yes, I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, this wheelchair is going to be thrown down the steps of heaven. And all these things. And then, she was talking about her whole perspective about things. And she said the most extraordinary thing I've ever heard anybody say. Being a quadriplegic is a good gift from a good God. Amen. You can't say something like that without the supernatural eternal perspective. She is longing for the day when she will be able to walk on her own. But she, and she knows that's coming. But she also knows that the Lord providentially is in control of things. And he permitted her to become a quadriplegic, and he's using that for his glory in her life. She's one of the most amazing women I've ever seen. Simply because of the condition she's in and what you hear coming out of her mouth. She has a little radio thing that I hear occasionally, too. I mean, just when I hear her, on her, her voice is so... It is just so penetrating and exciting and engaging. To, I can just see her smiling as she's speaking these words over the radio. That's what Jesus is talking about here. God hears prayer and he answers him. Bank on it. But when he responds, it will never be inappropriate. It will never be dangerous. It will always be good from his perspective. For his glory and for your good. So when Paul, going back to Philippians, and when Paul says, with prayer, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, because we know that about our God. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. I have a question. Uh, it would seem, if we prayed with supplication and thanksgiving, <clears throat> about something that we were anxious or concerned about, that that's that's kind of a done deal. When you're done, you're done. I mean, you, you were specific about what you requested. You thanked him for it. Does that mean we shouldn't be asking that again? Or should we it's a great question. That's a great question. Um, you know what? Jesus told a parable, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, about a woman 
who kept going to the local magistrate day after day after day after day after day asking him for the same thing. And finally he said, okay, I'll give it to you. Jesus uses that parable, you be the same way, persevere in your praying. So the answer seems to be keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. If I keep praying after I've thanked him, it's kind of like, you know, are you really going to do it? You know, I don't know, but I would, I would think your word for it. Well, yeah, not my word, the words, the words of Jesus, because that's, I think, I think he uses the word, uh, Woody, I think he used persevere. I think, he, if I'm not mistaken, he uses that word, persevere in your praying. Unceasingly. Yeah, don't give up. And I love that analogy. It's a parable that he tells this woman who keeps going to this magistrate. Day, she's asking the same thing. And finally he says, okay, I'll give it to you. Now, like all parables, the point isn't the details. The point is the point. Persevere. Um, I, it's the same man that used to tell us, man, be a student of your wife. He, he told us this a couple of times. He, he came to faith. He was from Philadelphia. He came to faith. His father was a military guy. And his, he wanted his father to come to Christ. And ha Dr. Hendricks said, I prayed for my father for 42 years until he came to faith. That's perseverance. Yes, and he said, and there were times when I thought, this is never going to happen. And yet, he persevered. And he lived, uh, you see, I, I think his father lived in another five years. But he, Hendricks, Hendricks was really a very... Um, wonderful guy to sit and, and listen to, but he said his father, this is how Hendricks did it, and when he came to his father, said, reporting for duty, Lord, what would you like me to do? I just, is a great, now, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but the rest of his life, his father, very military-oriented man, he diligently served the Lord for many five years of his life, and he attributed his salvation to his son praying for him for 42 years. So Persevere. Well, men, um, we got through the three prerequisites. We didn't get to the result. The result is verse 7. So next week, we'll pick up with verse 7. All right? Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the time of uh, study and reflection around your word. This is a powerful passage, incredibly practical. And what is a little unsettling for us to have that quality of life called the peace of God an attitude of gratitude. You seem to be saying that's important. Being able to get along with people, that's important. And being a person of prayer, not anxiety, that's important. Well, none of these things, none of these aspects come easily. They're part of that process of you conforming us into the image of your Son. We're patient for the process. Because we know that what you are teaching us and what you're exhorting and encouraging us to do has positive end results in our life. Lord, we are people under construction, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for one another. We can encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And I'm thankful for these men that are willing to take an hour plus the time to get here and go back to study and think and apply the living word of God to their lives. Bless them for it. Give them a richness of life that comes only from your good hand. And may they represent you well in all that they say and do in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.